0: dad bod
1: history welcome to this episode of dad bod history we went viral guys we finally went viral and in the best possible way uh i'm jake eric's on tonight we got jeff and cameron uh back in the house so that's how you guys doing above average above average mm-hmm. i like it that's all that matters um so what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to talk about the uh, 1932 Bonus Army. For those of you that did not pay attention in high school U.S. history, uh, the, US, the the Bonus Army of 1932 was a kind of a turning point during the Great Depression in how the United States government decided to deal um, with the Great Depression in general, um, but also deal with Uh, how we treat our veterans and it was kind of a watershed moment for how the United States um, treats their veterans after they get home and so we're going to get into that tonight but before we do um, how was your week you guys have any stories from the dad front
0: yeah I flew to San Diego and I drove my uh, youngest daughter and my currently only granddaughter to Lebanon Tennessee that is uh, it's a long, roughly man. 30 hours of driving. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, uh, it should have been horrifying. It was me and Lillian and Ivy. Ivy's the granddaughter. <clears throat> and Ivy, as it turns out, is the most amazing granddaughter ever. Through those 30 hours, she had one hour of pure meltdown as we coasted into Midland, Texas at 11 p.m., coming unhinged. I just put in earplugs, let her go other than that maybe five minutes one other day so that means 28 and a half hours of just napping or playing with her toes or giggling softly it was amazing just living her best life yeah and i and i went out there to help lily just because you know one person driving a baby that far i i I don't know if it would even be possible it'd be possible but it would be horrible so tennessee worked out really well so she ended up in tennessee what's that jake yeah, they live in uh, Lebanon, Tennessee, which is right outside of Nashville. So okay. uh, Tyler works for Amazon, and they have the a f- a f- a fulfillment center there. And uh, so, yeah, he started uh, yesterday at his new fulfillment center. And they don't have to pay uh, San Diego prices anymore. Like literally almost everything in their life is – Forty percent off of what it was yeah. just a week ago. Just a big that's place, sale, gas. that's pizzas. No, yeah, least.
1: everything's on sale. Pancakes, socks. <laughs> There's the movies. They're the everything. rare, the rare American family experiencing deflation at this current time. Right. No, yeah. so, they don't just by about. moving yeah. to Tennessee. That's <laughs> awesome. so Jeff,
2: Lillian,
0: is she, go to Tennessee. She's still in the navy. No, she's out of the navy as of last Monday. Oh wow. Really? That, that went by quick. Yeah, it was I can see you doing the math. It was not 4 years. Um, if you get pregnant and COVID's going on and the whole thing is the Sugar Honey Ice Tea show, then they find a way to get you out and they made it uh, made it easy on everybody, her included. That's, good. That's awesome. I was
2: wondering, I don't think cool. there's many naval bases in Tennessee, so <laughs> There's recruiters, but
0: uh, no, no shipyards. Enough. That's great. Yeah,
3: keep that story, Jeff. 30, 30 hour drive. I mean, if you were to do that drive a hundred times under those circumstances with a baby that age, it's going to go
2: horribly wrong ninety five times. Now, Cameron, at least you and Josh did that kind of drive with me in the back seat from Wisconsin to Arizona.
1: <laughs> you are kind of a baby, Eric. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Basically the same thing. Yeah, with uh
2: yeah. Ivy <laughs> behaves <laughs> better than <laughs> Eric. The- <clears throat>
3: Not
1: that great, great trip. Wouldn't surprise me. Here's the thing, <laughs> stop, I'm gonna change Eric diaper. <laughs> well here's the thing. If you've ever been on a road trip with Eric, get ready to drive one hundred percent of the time. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>.
3: <laughs> really? Oh yeah. Josh drove okay. about twenty hours. I drove about ten. Eric drove zero minutes of that trip. I I drove like an hour in
2: New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Where it was flat and straight. I don't and, recall. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the exactly. Easy part. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember, was
3: it, was it a steak and shake that we stopped in at, uh, was it Kansas City?
2: Yep. And the waitress oh, man, and the cook got in the fight.
3: And it was <laughs> everywhere. That was every
2: single table
3: in that restaurant was needing to be bust. I mean, there was dirty dishes everywhere and yeah. they were openly like yelling and cursing at each other. And we're just exhausted. It's three in the morning. You know, we already tried about two other places and we're fine. I don't care if these people spit in our food, we're gonna sit and we're gonna enjoy our meal. Turns out it was fantastic. But uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a
2: heck of a trip. Poor memory. It sounds like a Waffle House. Yeah, it pretty much was. It was was a Steak and Shake. I know that
1: for a fact. A a Steak and Shake caters to the same clientele as a Waffle House does on (laughs) a 3 a.m. weekend night. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, if you're in either one of those establishments at 3 a.m.,
0: it's a (laughs) one-off. Yeah. So I hope it's a one-off. It's
1: it's the same basic basic, uh, vibe. Yeah, and
3: I mean, that's the only time in my life where I was... 100% 100% sure that somebody spit in my food. And you know what? I didn't care. I was so t- <laughs> hot, tired, so exhausted.
2: Yeah, I was you didn't I didn't just care. enjoyed my meal. Well, who cooked the food? Cuz didn't the cook leave? Did Josh, did made, Josh get up and he made uh, on an apron
1: and go back there?
3: Yeah. It's coming back to me. I I don't know. That that waitress was uh she was going to be there for a long night there. Yeah. I think it was just the two of them
1: Good times Very much yeah. so Nothing but the best <laughs> Just Alright Eric Top that one You're up buddy Well I built a loft N- For my daughter
2: oh. <clears throat> oh You remember the loft we had awesome. I do remember In the college. loft you had So I Looking back I'm like oh yeah I I built that I don't, I don't remember building that, but I did with uh, my other roommate's help. But my daughter wanted a loft. And so for her birthday, we are like, yeah, we'll build you a loft. So <clears throat> I got the lumber, I got the wood, I had the tools. I'm like, all right, let's, I kind of semi-planned it out. And on Saturday, I'm like, we're going to start on this. And I think Saturday and maybe a little bit on Sunday, this thing should be done. We finished that about five hours ago, and if you're counting, it's Wednesday now. So it took me five days Uh Mm -hmm. just because, you know, something didn't work. Um, When I was building the ladder, I stripped a screw out really bad. So I went and got a tool to remove it, and that didn't work. So I just bought two more 2 by 4s and uh, took a different, different approach. So it's done now. It's got railings. It's got a ladder. It's nicely secured to the wall. How what else does it need? How many trips to mean? Home Depot? What's that? How many trips to Home Depot? <sighs> what was the over under? Four? I'm going to say four. I, I yeah. think in the past five days, I've been to Home Depot five or six times. And I've actually Ooh, been to a different account. Home Depot one of those times. Because you got embarrassed because you kept... Yeah, they're like, hey, (laughs) hey, Eric. Oh, they know me here. I got to (laughs) go.
1: It's like when I walk in,
2: we have a sandwich shop down the street, Uh, and I'll walk in there. And when I walk in, they grab the bag and hand it to me without asking my name. Like, they just know. and, And it's also because the sandwich that I order for my wife is very specific. Uh huh, and sure. they're just they just they see me walk in the door, they grab it. They're like, "Here you go!" Mm-hmm.
1: Gosh. So I got a question. That's, for that's you guys. pretty cool, though. It, it is. Was, but it also says a I have a problem. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the problem is you love delicious sandwiches. That's okay.
3: Way to throw but, your wife under the bus, by the way.
1: Yeah. I got a question. So you go to the grocery store, and I think there was a, a Seinfeld bit about this decades ago, but like you go to the produce aisle and you're like buying cantaloupe or or whatever it is, whatever fruit or vegetable you're, you're buying. And you're like, well, how do I know if it's a good one? So you like squeeze it Mm -hmm. and look at it, maybe roll it down the aisle, you know, or you you just look at like what everyone else is doing when they're buying the fruit and just, I'll just copy them. I feel that way when I go to home Depot and I'm like picking out lumber or tools and like, I don't know it's good wood. I'll just look at this guy. He looks like a carpenter and just kind of, Buy whatever he's buying, and I'll, I'll probably be okay. That's that's how I feel when I go to Home Depot. That's well, how totally useless yeah, so I am. I bought all this. Like, I like the idea of, like, just like I like the idea of fresh fruit. I like the idea of being able to build my own stuff, but I don't have mm-hmm. the wherewithal. It was
2: fantastic yeah. because today we were building the the railings, and I'm trying to square these railings up. And my wife looks at it. She says, well, it says it's level. And I'm like, these are not level. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, because the wood is like crooked, wildly crooked. And I, and I hold it and I look at it like down the edge. And I did that at Home Depot. There's, I went to the aisle where they have all the lumber and I grabbed a couple two by fours. And I just kind of like looked down the edge. This other guy's grabbing them. And I'm like, does he think Does he think I don't know what I'm doing? And I was worried about what the other guy was thinking he doesn't think. <laughs> and, and not to he mention like, when you're in the uh-huh. lumber part. That's like the pro part of Home Depot. And how many guys are walking around like, dude, you're buying lumber and flip-flops? You're not serious about this. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Gangster. And you know everything about it. And you don't even need to put on that's your work boots until you get home. So the that's worst part of out. the home Yeah, there's
1: either the
2: guy that's home. Was they got one of the big carts? Well, go ahead. You know, with the the, the yeah. four things. Right. But I had to get some smaller it's items first. I was literally pushing this cart around with like a box of screws in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like overkill and I was worried people were gonna be like, Do you need that, sir? Should we take that for you? I'm like, No no, I'm gonna go get one no. two by four. So
3: No, that's instant street cred. The bigger the cart, the more people know what you're doing. Like, this guy's on oh, yeah. something. He's got a real
0: project going. Yeah, I'm going to get a two-by-four yeah. two-by-five, whatever it takes. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah two-by-four? Can I just have one of them? Good, sir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I remember nice. I, bought, I bought some baseboard for our house, and the lady's like, I take it to the register, and she's like, how many feet? like, I don't know. I bought four units. Like, I don't know how many feet are in a... You <laughs> tell me. I was supposed to be counting feet? Like, I know I what I was doing. Like, I, bought <laughs> I bought four. I bought four baseboards. i a metric system, <laughs> <Yeah>. was <laughs> kind of- I didn't know these questions when I got to the checkout. just thought I scanned the barcode, and I was good to go. <laughs> how many feet? <laughs> uh, son of a gun. All right. Um. Well, let's... Let's get into our... Where were we? Yeah, uh, let's get into history. We're going to talk about some history. But first... So... Yeah, you know, Dad Bought History is brought to you
2: by Transworld. Oh, the,
1: good the good people, people at, at Transworld. Transworld. The fine folks at Transworld. So... Are, you're oh, going to yeah, start it, read, I mean, you if you own, own business,
2: and you know the challenges of dealing with employees, customers, social media, where, not unless you go viral, it? then it's not a challenge. Government yeah. regulations and the rest of it. With the pandemic <laughs> coming to an end, there are... Hundreds, maybe even thousands of buyers coming to the marketplace looking for existing businesses to buy. If you're ready to cash out, and I think I might be pretty soon, you need to call Transworld Business Advisors today. Not tomorrow. Today. Do it right now. Well, no, because Jeff's. All right. We have a database loaded with interested buyers and have over 40 years of
1: experience <laughs> in this industry. Take it away, Jake. We will. We will guide you through settling a price for your business. We have a database with sales data from tens of thousands of sold businesses, and we know the market price for your listing. We will find qualified buyers with our extensive reach and market-leading advertising. Transworld will ensure that the closing process goes as it should. When you leave the closing table, you will get paid and will be free of liability and responsibility. If you are...
2: Oh, okay, Cameron,
1: go finish it, yourself. it. If, if, you're yeah, buyer, if you're a buyer,
3: If you're a buyer, Transworld can help you as well. From evaluating a business to helping for funding, we are there for you all the way to the first day as the owner of your new business. Call us to set up a discreet, confidential discreet. consultation with your local representative. You can reach me or actually Jeff Peterson at <laughs> 903-422 Six eight one eight, or you can go to www.transtworld.com. Again, that is www.tworld.com.
2: All right, I beautiful it was, boom. I give it a B plus. Jake, no rehearsal you necessary. Clearly, yeah, really. like with a sultry, really. Oh, pulling yeah. people in. Look. The only
1: way I yeah, know how to pure radio voice yeah. on that. Dude. The only way I need to know how to read ad copy is through seduction. If I'm not, if I'm not trying to oh, seduce someone oh, into buying something, I don't know how you sell. Sex sells, Jake. Yeah, could be it's a lot helps. of female buyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of female buyers, <laughs> no. So <laughs> here's my segue. So we, Eric posted a video on TikTok about a week ago. And it went viral. It was our first truly viral video. I think 0. we're at over 4. 2 million 2. views 4. right now. 2.4 million views. And uh, we have over 50,000 subscribers on TikTok. And it's so awesome. And if you are watching us on YouTube um, from our TikTok videos, thank you so much. We are eternally grateful um, for eternally your support. Eternally grateful. But, well. Eternally. I said <laughs> what I said. Okay? So, but here's an interesting caveat about that prior to this video this specific video going viral and it's it was a video um, it was about the oklahoma Yeah, it was about the correct? unknowns in the the the, the 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 yeah the unknowns from um, pearl harbor and so it's an it was an incredible video go watch it if you haven't um, but as a result of that video going viral and getting all these thousands of new followers or subscribers on tiktok um, you can look at creator tools if you log into TikTok. And prior to that video, our male-female breakdown was like 86% male and like 13% female. And I don't know, 1%. Other, I don't know. But I don't know how the numbers break out. But now, because of that video, it's like 63% female, 33%. Eric, in one video, <laughs> turned... Turn the whole dynamic of our, <laughs> of our channel on TikTok. It was an appeal to emotion. It's the heart for Okay, up, maybe
2: I'm just, no, maybe that's, I'm just stereotyping. But the video was an appeal to emotion initially. Because I know guys didn't follow it because they got upset that I said aluminum and not some other metal. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was some actuallys out there. I set them straight today. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you did.
2: Why is not aluminum? Anyway. You showed him. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. The uh, metallurgy mic, as an insult, I love it. Just calling someone a metallurgy yeah. mic because they like metals. I don't
1: know. No, yeah, you keep that in your back pocket when for just stand here. <laughs> it's a great comeback. All right, so... Thank it's you for your... ...in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. All right. So, thank you for your new viewer. This is the high-quality content you can come to expect from us week in and week out. <laughs> If you're not, then you know who we are and what to expect. Um, so with that, let's get down to our topic for tonight. And I want to talk about the 1932 Bonus Army. Um, so on January, sorry, July 28, 1932, um, President Herbert Hoover sent uh, the U.S. Um, Army soldiers from Fort Myer, Virginia, uh, across the Potomac, and into Washington, D.C., tanks, um, mounted cavalry, arm, uh, infantry with fixed bayonets to disperse, by any means necessary, uh, a group of approximately 20,000 veterans who were demanding um, their bonuses that had served in World War One. So that that's the anniversary of what happened um, in 1932, so 90 years ago um, tomorrow. That, that's what that is. The backstory to that is is even more interesting. Uh, So in World War I, about 3 million uh, Americans served in some capacity during World War I. And in 1924, Congress passed a bill to pay those veterans a rate, a bonus rate of $1 per day that they served during the war, if they served uh, stateside, and $1 and $0.25 if they served overseas, served in in Europe. Um, And and they passed this bill and they said, this is a bonus that you will get. Uh, If your total equals $50 or less, you will get that bonus right away. If it's more than $50, um, you will not get that bonus until 1945, which is a long time to wait for your, your service bonus. Uh, but that's the way the law was passed. It actually, uh, Congress passed that law overriding a veto from Eric's favorite president, Calvin Coolidge. Um, they had to, one of Calvin Coolidge's rare mistakes to Eric. Um, but they passed the bill. So these veterans were expected to get a bonus. Okay, Fast forward to 1932. Because uh, well,
2: I would agree that's a mistake. <clears throat> it's at least principled, right? Patriotism bought and paid for is not patriotism. But I mean, yeah, yeah that was his point. For yeah. all the, uh, the equipment and all the businesses that made their money. So I disagree,
1: but in principle. Exactly. He's correct. But, yeah. You understand where he's coming from. Yeah. So fast forward to 1932. We're now in the midst of the Great Depression. The stock market crash in 1929 had happened. And these. Many veterans are now jobless and have no income. And so uh, there was a, a representative, Wright Putman, um, from Texas, who tried to get the bonus paid immediately. He tried to get a bill passed in 1932. Um, eventually that failed um, in May of 1932. It failed. And so there was a, a, a veteran, an Army veteran named Walter Waters, and he was a sergeant. He lived in Portland, Oregon, and he stood up on March 15th, 1922, and he basically said, let's march to Washington. Let's go to Washington and demand our bonuses now. Now, in March, nobody wanted to go with him. But in May, when the most recent bill that Representative Putnam was trying to get passed failed, he was able to get about 250 veterans from, from Portland, Oregon. They marched to the Union Pacific Railroad. And then the next day, they boarded some trains and the railroad workers helped them along this trip um, because a lot of the railroad workers were veterans themselves. And so they wanted to support their fellow veterans from World War I. Uh, So they boarded a train, started heading east towards Washington, D.C. as they made their way across. News started to gather and more veterans from all across the country started to migrate towards Washington, D.C. And I believe the first veterans arrived um, or or Waters, his group, arrived from Portland on May 29th, 1932 in Washington. Shortly thereafter, 25,000 veterans, their wives, some of their kids were in Washington camped out. It became like the biggest Hooverville in the country. Um, And they were camped out. They would occupy vacant buildings. Um, The chief of police for the Capitol uh, helped them find housing and lodging. He um, helped them get fed. Uh, People were offering free medical services. The veterans, while they were there, had their own military police. Um, They had Reveille every morning. They um, had schools. They were setting up schools for the kids that were there. Uh, All of these things but they were camped out in Washington for two months demanding that they get their bonuses and um, all that kind of started to come to a head in June. I believe it was June 19th um, when there was another bill, it passed the house um, to get the bonus pay immediately, but it failed in the Senate. And so they let waters know yeah, the bill failed in the Senate. And he said, well, I ain't leaving. I'm not going to leave until 1945. If I have to, I'm going to stay here. And so President Hoover is getting a little concerned about this, and he's afraid that it's going to turn violent. J. Edgar Hoover um, was in charge of the Bureau of Investigation, which was the predecessor to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And he was certain that this group of This bonus army, this group of veterans, was infested with communists, and so he was trying to root out the Red Scare um, in this group. And there were a few communists. There were some communists in this group, but... There's always a few communists. Yeah, there's always a few, but it was not, it was not like, you know, the equivalent I could think of today is like... We kind of knee-jerk reaction. I don't know if it's a knee-jerk, but we'll say any kind of protest group. Well, that's actually Antifa, or that's actually um, you know some ultra-right wing group. You know, we'll like immediately go like those are just Nazis, or you know, we'll immediately. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the same thing. Hoover's like, well, that's all. The, it's just the communists. They're just trying to rile things up for us. Um, so Hoover, at J. Edgar Hoover, not President Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover is worried about the communists. President Hoover is concerned about. These veterans getting violent, especially since the bill got shot down, which he did not support. He did not want to pay these veterans their bonus either. Um, And so he said, We need to evict these guys because there were still like 20,000 of them left. So we need to evict them um, because we're afraid it's going to go violent. And so during this two month occupation, General MacArthur had been secretly training army units in riot control for just this event to evict these veterans. And so uh, MacArthur's training these these units from the Army, from Fort Myer, on how to disperse a riot, basically, and um, urban warfare. And on July 28th, Hoover sends in the Army, and this is an unprecedented thing, that Hoover is sending in the United States Army to disperse a peaceful group granted 25,000, but a peaceful group of occupiers and United States veterans. Um, and so tanks roll in and armed infantry with fixed bayonets. Um, they start gassing the Hooverville. Uh, the gas that ignites these buildings, these shanties go up in flames. Um, and they, you know, they, the United States Army is basically called out to evict its own, its own veterans from Washington, D.C. George Patton uh, is leading this eviction um, under the orders from MacArthur. Dwight D. Eisenhower is a major at the time, and he's MacArthur's personal aide. If you don't know who these three gen- these men are, they were all very famous and um, incredible generals during World War II, but um, in 1932, they are evicting their own veterans from Washington, D.C. And um, there's some discrepancy on on how that happened. Um, It looks like at around 1.45, July 28th, there is a, some sort of confrontation between groups of veterans and the police. A veteran ends up dead. Another one is severely wounded. Three police officers are injured. And then after that moment is when MacArthur orders the troops in to cross the Potomac and evict everybody. And, the 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 immediate consequence of this this eviction is that the veterans are gone. They get pushed to the Maryland border, and then they're loaded up on trucks and taken to the Pennsylvania border. That that was the immediate consequence of that. Shortly thereafter, though, this is 1932. This was an election year, um, and Hoover's running against Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is kind of the nail in the coffin to to Hoover's presidency. Roosevelt says. We will, this will elect me. This is going to elect me. Him doing this to his own people is going to elect me. And Roosevelt didn't want to pay the bonus either. He was against paying the bonus because he didn't want to create a special class of citizen um, for these veterans when everybody is suffering during the Great Depression. Um, But he knows he's politically savvy enough to know that that's going to get him elected. So that's the... that's the story of the bonus army. And it's, I was telling Jeff before the the podcast, it's this thing that I heard about in high school, in U S history class, and it was almost just a footnote about the great depression. And yet this is a compelling, and I would say in the more, and I think we're going to discuss it as we get into it a little bit more, a compelling watershed moment in U S history, especially in how we treat our veterans and, and I would say how the United States government responded to the New Deal, or not to the to the Great Depression, with the New Deal um, after this event. Because prior to this, the United States government was very laissez-faire, hands-off when it came to um, government intervening in economic issues like this. But, well, in, in addition to the
0: New Deal, you had the GI Bill, which I think exactly. dovetails really nicely with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think they realized that they had uh, really hung in the backside of those veterans and um, especially with another world war on the horizon, maybe realized maybe we do need a second class of citizen or I don't know second class, but maybe they are special. Maybe they were deserving of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes an argument, right? You're willing to sacrifice potentially your life um, in service of the country At a minimum, you should be taken care of when you get home. And I think that's something that holds true today. And I think, you know, unfortunately, they, they, you know, they, they love to heap praise on the veterans of World War One, but they didn't want to take care of them when the chips were down. And you know maybe they should have taken care of everybody in the Great Depression earlier, or invested in programs that would have helped everybody earlier. Maybe there's a case to be made for that. But you promised the veterans you were going to pay them, and you should pay them.
0: I did a uh, did a search online to find the value of so th- most of those guys would have gotten five hundred and eighty dollars in 1936. Anybody want to hazard a guess what uh, that is worth in today's dollars? No idea. I, I'll tell you. I'll give you an over under. The over under is uh, fifteen thousand. You think it's worth more or less than fifteen thousand dollars? Less. I'll go over twelve thousand one hundred ninety six dollars <throat> in modern money. Jeez. So you know, not a ton. It's a lot of money. Currency changing. Even still, I mean, if you didn't have a job right now, are you going to uh-huh. walk to DC from wherever you are to, uh-huh. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe things are a lot worse than they are back then. I, I'm wondering how much well, that $580, I mean, could, $2, the $12,000, I, I wonder how, two really or four months. I how far you could stretch that. They also don't that. have
2: a cell phone bill. Yeah, exactly. They don't have, you know, what are they paying for on a daily basis or on a monthly basis? Basically,
0: basically. Yeah, they don't have internet. I mean, come on. I mean, life was basically free back then. Let's be honest. <laughs> what do they have to do? Buy some chickens and some candles. Come on. Yeah.
3: But but how desperate do you have to be? You know, Jeff Jeff talked about a thirty hour drive from San Diego to Tennessee, and. In those days, traveling across country from Portland, Oregon to DC is a major, major undertaking that takes weeks. So, you Uh,
0: know, before the interstate (laughs) system, it took over 30 days to get from the west coast to the east coast. And these guys have their families with them,
3: oftentimes, they have their wives and families. And, you know, they have really no plan other than we're going to DC and we're going to fight for you know, what we we feel like we're entitled to. And as they go, it was cool to read about this story, all of the <coughs> support that they received from, you know, Jake mm-hmm. alluded to it from the railroad guys who are often veterans. But, you know, people were making donations. I read something that uh, there's 250 people in that first group that made the pilgrim- pilgrimage, and they had $30 between them you know, that is a terrifying yeah. undertaking. Um, and the amount of support that they received to get there is awesome, you know, and then if that doesn't happen, maybe this protest doesn't occur.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it, that's true. I mean, it could have died before it started. Um, it, it really could have, but it's interesting because, you know, at this point, the, the great depression was going on its third year and things weren't getting that much better wow. um and it's you know i think yeah, go us i don't know if it's the misfortune or good luck to say we've lived through two recessions in the past 20 years um, but even those recessions as bad as they were were relatively short and began to recover in a relatively quick amount of time now yeah. The 2008 recession took a long time to get back to what's interesting about But it started to get better within about six to nine months. This is two and a half years that they're going on. And a quarter of the country was out of work. You know, a
3: quarter of the families did not have a breadwinner. That is, you know, when things were the worst and oh eight, you know, I think the unemployment went up to 10%. This was ten, maybe five percent. Yeah. Um, and, and the world was a lot bigger at that point,
2: you know. You well, uh, okay, a couple things. You know, it, it was harder to One make money. One is it's harder to make money, sure. Although I yeah, could go down and just, was. hey, you know, go to a local business, can I can I do some work today? And you'll pay me and they'd be like, sure. And you do some work and they, they slip you the money. You don't need to file W fours, you don't need to do a background check, like if you want to get a job today, you got to jump through a lot more hoops than you would have 90 years ago. Sure.
3: Oh, well, man, I think to, to point, we've got uh, the Internet now. We've got ways to make right. instant, instant money now. And it's hard to do back Over
0: then. Over 30% of the jobs in the country back then were on a farm. So
2: walking across but the country it, it, and finding day labor
0: a, on a farm was it's, relatively... It's not something
2: that's going to... It, it was not a difficult to make undertaking, it. to your point, Eric. Like, that's not going to be an easy living. The other thing to think yeah, about but the is... but the farms are going to bankrupt, bankrupt too. So. That didn't, <laughs> still that, have, that didn't have, have a huge impact on most people's lives. It wasn't until the following year when the banks started closing because they didn't actually have cash and they weren't backed by anything... And I think it was 90% of the banks in the country closed because they became insolvent. And that's when most people got hit really hard because that's when people had their savings wiped out, had their investments wiped out. Um, So it was like late 1930. Um, A statistic that I look at with my students when we study this is... We look at like unemployment, number of farms repodest, number of banks closed, number of savings account closed, like all this kind of stuff. It gets progressively worse from 1929 to 30 to 31 to 32. 33 and 34 are the worst years. And to think that it's been in a downward direction since 1930, and it's going to take four years to get to the bottom, and then... Starts turning around 35 is a little bit better. 36 is a little bit better and everything starts getting progressively better after 33 and 34. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a long process. It's a 10 year process, which is why Jake said, you know, our, our recessions are relatively short. Um, You know, I don't think we've, we've had an economic situation in our country recently where it takes four years to get to the bottom
1: Well, yeah. exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, if, uh, technically if depression, depression is I mean, that's the, a, uh, a depression is just a really long in recession. A
2: depression yeah, is and, a constriction in the economy. We, we've or had the, the conversation a many the times. A recession is when growth. We've had slows. The conver- Go ahead, Eric. I, actually, I guess a recession
0: I have a is definition two quarters of recession being a uh, reduced GDP. A depression growth. is four or more.
2: Oh, they called it something else. We can look right. that up. It's
0: actually been in the news lately because the White House listen denies we're currently in a the recession because they're playing with the. Yeah, they're playing with the definition of the word. But yes, yeah, so it's it's been in the news quite a bit lately.
3: And and definitions aside, you know, we, we have grandparents who's, you know, who were little kids during that great depression. And, you know, I can remember growing up where, I mean, I would literally get smacked for not scraping my plate and not finishing my food. And because my grandparents came from an era where if you don't eat every single thing that you have, you know, you're you might starve. And, you know, children, people who were children in 2008, you know, it wasn't very few people. I mean, there's people like that everywhere, but, you know, there are very few people that had that experience in 2008. So, you know, if we're comparing recession versus depression, it's, it's not even close.
1: It's apples. And yeah. I, was, I remember my grandmother telling me she slept in her car as a kid in the thirties <laughs> because that's what they had. To live in. It was a car, yeah. And her mom had come from Germany to escape the terrible economics in Germany at the time, <laughs> post World War One. And they come to America. Boom, Depression, like, well, crap, like you can't win for losing, sort of thing. But, I know. um. So you can understand, I think, the desperation of these veterans, you know, and, and we say, well, you could, you know, you could have find work as a day laborer. Well, a lot of veterans were wounded and disabled. So, you know, they might not have been able to find work as a day laborer. Yeah, no, and hard work,
0: you know, and this is money that they were promised. They they, they weren't going exactly. out just, yeah. just trying to dig something up. I mean, there, there's a quote from that article. Uh, Theodore Jocelyn, who was president, Hoover's press secretary, said the quote is the marchers, he asserted. Have I mean, rapidly turned from bonus seekers to communists or bums. That's pretty. It's pretty tone deaf, right there. Yeah, Yeah, it is. You know the yeah, the, the, exact- the, the, the the men and women who won World one World War One for you, the Great War, as it was known at the time. They come back and now they're communists or bums because they're trying to get what you yeah, promised them. And, mm-hmm. and now you're kicking the can down the road a decade, right? The yeah. nerve yeah, politicians it, it, in, back in then is generation. similar to the nerve now. And I don't
3: know what the life expectancy was for people born in that era. I mean, most of these people are people that were born turn of the century bef- or before. And if they've got to wait to 1945, they might be dead.
1: Well, and that was their argument. is like, time? Most of us will be dead. We're, we can't wait 30 years mm-hmm. until nineteen forty five to get this bonus. We, we need weren't counting on half We're being dead. now.
0: Yeah, well, and, and don't think the government bean counters hadn't taken that into account.
2: Right.
1: Oh yeah, you hear well, I mean right, that's such a that that's such a that's such a well, it'll pay for itself in ten years thing, right? Like this bill, yeah, it costs a trillion dollars. But it's a trillion dollars over ten years. So it's not that bad. It's the exact yeah, it's same okay. thing. We'll give you a bonus when you're dead. That, that's yeah. what'll happen. Unless it's fifty dollars or less, then you can have it now. It's like ridiculous, but I mean, you it know, so Cooper's the presidency, right? Well, yeah, I mean, he wasn't a super popular anyway, but this definitely finished him off because it was during an election year. Once you send the army to to disperse American soil, American heroes in your capital, you're, you're probably not going to win re-election. Um, but yeah, so FDR immediate consequence, FDR wins the 1932 presidential election, um, and as such, he brings in the New Deal. Uh, interesting note in that article, though, um, the Bonus Army came back in 1933. Um, I think it was it was much smaller, but about 3,000 of them came to came back to Washington, and FDR actually sent his wife Eleanor out to meet with them. So in contrast with Hoover, it says Hoover sent the Army, FDR sent his wife. And um, FDR was able to convince most of them to become part of New Deal programs. Um, So he didn't give them the bonus because he didn't want to treat them special. Um, But he did get them jobs as part of the the New Deal uh, programs. Um, And then in 1936, that's when the cash now bonus was actually passed in Congress, Senator at the time, Harry Truman voted for it, um, in defiance of, uh, FDR, FDR did not want it to be passed, but in 1936, they did get the cash now bonus passed and they got that $580 on average distributed, um, to approximately 3 million veterans, uh, from world war one. And then the, the, probably the biggest impact was the GI Bill, which I think was finally signed into law in 1944. And the GI Bill, which, Jeff, your kids are beneficiaries of that. Um, free college education, VA home loans, uh, medical care um, from yeah, the United it, States it, military. Yeah, it, it reshaped this country. I mean, those,
0: those men and women who came back from war and used that to... Learn skills and get into the workforce. You you had the the fifties and um, the accidental superpower. Of the United States almost literally roared to life at that point, and the GI Bill is a huge part of that. I mean, it was it and was an education program. Yeah, that's right. Well educated. Uh, yeah, so it's not a Americans. bunch of veterans on trains trying to find work on a farm. These guys are going to trade yeah. schools. My, my grandfather learned drafting on the GI Bill and worked for Hughes Aerospace for the rest of his life. So and it's before that, he, the, was, yeah, he was a high school dropout when
1: he uh, when he joined the army or joined the Navy, rather, in World War Two. So yeah. a big part of the the rise of the middle class in America is because of the GI Bill, because yeah. all those veterans came home. They got a college education for free. Um, they were able to get affordable housing, get great jobs, and the economy just dominated because of it. Yeah, and Europe. And the there's, other, there's definitely and other yeah, factors.
0: Th- there's a lot going on, but it was uh, it was a perfect storm. It was a sweet time, and that's a great thing. You know, the
3: <clears throat> yes, legislation is important, and the you know the the process of you know, the governmental process and and going through voting on bills and and making them come to fruition. Everything is great. But I like um, reading about all of the supporters and all of the people that had a hand in saying, this is a worthy cause. We want to support this. And, you know, maybe they weren't veterans themselves. Maybe they weren't making that uh, pilgrimage across the country themselves, but they supported it financially or they you know, bought, uh, there's a, there's a great story in the article they read where, um, you know, people went to the local coffee shop and said, Hey, give us a bunch of coffee and give us a bunch of cigarettes and we'll buy all the food that you have to support these guys and to make them as, as comfortable as possible. Cause they understood the importance of what was going on.
0: When well, I think where they yeah, about I can't remember her name, where, where Hoover sent the army, uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't Eleanor Roosevelt, wasn't she the the one that, that got sent into the camp from, from, from Roosevelt's or FDR? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, it's just a totally different tack. And like you said, Cameron, um, I can't remember the name of that woman in the article. She was an heiress. Yeah, I'm trying to find she it. actually owned the Hope Diamond. So she was buku bucks, so to out. speak. And she worked with the chief of police in D.C. to help feed um, the veterans and make sure that they were taken care of while they were camped out in, in the Capitol. Um, and Evelyn so, Walsh like I said, Karen, those, you know, yeah, those, those, the legislation is important and there were people in Congress working to help the veterans, but without this bonus March and without this occupation, does the GI bill get passed? Maybe, but I doubt it um does the bonus get issued in 1936 absolutely not had they not marched they would have just waited until 1945 um and so the people were able to spur the positive action to get the the result that they needed in congress um so it was a it was an incredible movement a moment in u.s history Died in forty-five. Um, and and yeah, you Finally, kind of president. president. How long was he? You, have you met in like the nineteen-eighties
2: and nineties. Who are well, only themselves FDR he Republicans, him. right? Like they're Republicans, they're conservative, but they're all in with FDR and his programs.
1: Well, there's, I mean, I've heard of a lot of Rockefeller Republicans who were Republicans that supported the social programs of FDR, like social security, Medicare, the GI bill. Um, but they were like fiscally a little more conservative and their foreign policy was different, but they were still Rockefeller Republicans. Um, but yeah, it just kind of... It, it, left me to ask a couple of questions. The first one being what <laughs> we get painted a picture of MacArthur Eisenhower and Patton as heroes and they are, and they were, and without them, there's a good chance the United States doesn't help the allies win world war one because they were incredible and what they did. But th- this moment and Eisenhower is a little less guilty. Um, But this moment when they are the ones at the head of the column dispersing the bonus army, that's Uh pretty, that's pretty jarring to my perception of them.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Does that, did anyone else get that sense? Like, especially MacArthur, he was very like, and maybe this is just who he always was, but this is something that MacArthur was like, yeah, yeah. We're going to disperse him because if we didn't, then we would have had a real battle and that's what we didn't mm-hmm. want to do. And so he didn't really mm-hmm. care. Um, but I think we get yeah. at this one picture of these guys and on this other thing that we never actually talk about. It's like, yeah, but they did something pretty shady in the thirties that I think it's good to keep in mind as well.
3: I, I think if we could go back and, you know, interview them as, as to, you know, hey, what led you led you to make that decision? Why were you training guys to disperse this crowd and and you know prepare to fight these uh, these veterans? I mean, I think they would have told you that. Oh, I don't want this thing to get out of control. And yeah. it's, it's very complicated to say because you're right, Jake. Like that is, that is not a good look for these guys who are destined to be war heroes uh, a couple of years later. Um, kind of are are siding with. Oh, the big bad government or Big Brother or whatever, but you know, at the same time, yeah, tempers are flaring. They've come, God knows how many miles to, uh, you know, the the foot of of Congress, and you don't know what's going to happen. This could be a really ugly scene in a hurry. And I'm not defending them, but it's it's a complicated thing when everybody's scared at that point
1: yeah no I agree it just kind of gives me this when you're a hammer everything you see looks like a nail and I think I get that vibe from them like well yeah. I'm a general I'm a soldier and these guys are preventing me from completing my objective mm-hmm. which is to disperse them and keep the peace so yeah. I'm going to do that by any means necessary even if that means rolling in tanks yeah. and setting fire to this shanty town. Yeah. and I think that's where it's like I get it. I understand their rationale and reasoning, but at the same time, yeah, part of it, thing rolling one. in
2: with tanks Dude, and setting yeah. it on
1: fire just sounds
2: so much like Waco. Right. Just, it just sounds so familiar. Oh, and the FBI stormed the like, compound. How many times has the United States uh, in its official capacity, um, just been impatient and it just ends horribly just we're not willing to wait any longer we need to disperse you this standoff needs to end mm-hmm. and then people are dead and you've turned everyone against you It's interesting you use the word
3: impatient there. When, so you're you're just saying that, hey, you know we have to clean this this group of people out right now. I, I, I don't know. That, that's not the word maybe that I would use. Reactionary, but um, I don't know. Interesting
1: just popped into my head to use that word. Um. Although in general I agree, I I think because the solution would have been just to pay the veterans, right? And I get it; it would have been expensive, but the solution is
2: that could also set a really bad precedent,
1: right? But even though it was promised, um, well,
2: not just that, but you know, as soon as you show your commitments. We're gonna pay yeah. you. <laughs> so then, like a bunch of farmers are like, we should go down there and ask for money too. I know there's a difference in one was promised and one wasn't, but
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you don't want to accuse the government yeah. of taking care of their. You people don't want people thinking that this bad government's going to take care of the world state. but. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want that. But it's just interesting that there was a better solution. They just didn't want to take it. Um, and then I got another question for you guys. And this is kind of more current events because, you know, I think things like the GI Bill are incredible. They truly are. And if, you know, I think they should be expanded, if anything. And I think they're they're good for the people that um, take use of them. But... I, my question is, do we treat our veterans? Well, today, um, Or do we still go with uh, oh, thank you for your service. you guys are heroes, yeah, but don't make me uncomfortable. because I think in some regards, and specifically, I you know John Stewart has been a crusader for this, um, the tar pits or the, the burn pits in Iraq that thousands of soldiers have life-devastating illnesses from, and Congress refuses to act and to help them. And not everybody in Congress, certainly there are people in Congress that are trying to provide funding and treatment and care, but Congress and the President have not been able to help these veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan from these burn pits that they were exposed to that had all sorts of terrible chemicals that have destroyed their bodies. Um, And I feel like obviously the circumstances are different, but not that different. They're still Um,
2: waiting for evidence and, and demanding evidence for certain conditions tied to agent orange. So there are uh, birth defects that they find within male children. And there are birth defects that they find among female children. And one of those is recognized as having to be, is tied to Agent Orange. The other one isn't, even though the prevalence of both of those occur only in people who have, like, a father or grandfather who dealt with mixing the Agent Orange in the barrels. And they're still trying to convince the government that this condition only mm-hmm. happens to people who worked with agent orange and the government's like yeah we need more evidence I mean, that was 60 years ago
1: which sounds a lot like the yeah which sounds a lot like the let's wait until 1945 before you pay these bonuses they just want yeah. they just want to run out the clock mm-hmm. so I don't know it's just you know something I, I that, think things have gotten better go ahead Kim, so something that jumped out at me you know in, in reading
3: and uh, in, in prepping for this it says uh, ultimately nearly two billion was distributed in, in dollars two, two, $2 billion dollars to yeah two billion dollars was distributed to three million veterans and you know I just did a quick Google. Of um, the pandemic stimulus checks and what that cost the U.S. government, and I don't know how to wrap my head around the two billion back in 1936 versus five trillion, which is what it was for the for the pandemic stimulus checks. But you know, it, it just seems like the government was less willing to throw around monopoly money back then. Than they are now, and I know this. They were still on the gold standard at that point, 1936. But um, I, I think that's a factor too. That billion with a B was a ton of money back then, and you know, if you're a politician and saying where is this money going to come from, that's that. It, it seemed like like Jake said it would have been easier to just write the check. You know, two billion doesn't sound like that much. In today's
2: standards, when we're printing money, they to had to out, they had to actually you know, back that money for free. Now that that was the issue, right? So writing that check, <clears throat> the checks yeah. going to bounce. So nowadays, they just enter zeros into the accounts, and that's fine. That's how that works. We understand that that's actually a system that <clears throat> can work because we're not tied to a standard anymore. So we have the ability to issue money, knowing that it can cause inflation, unless you do something at the other end, either, you know, pull some money in taxes out of the system. But 1932, you don't have that ability. And I think it's one of the New Deal programs to, not to remove the gold standard, but to reduce the amount of gold needing to be held to like 33% of its previous standard, which would effectively triple the amount of money the government can issue. Hmm. So. Hmm. Yeah. And I I think that's
3: an important uh, aspect of this whole thing, because we were still on the gold standard until uh, Nixon, right? Which would have been the seventies.
1: Correct. So,
3: yeah, I mean, had this occurred 40 years later, I wonder how it would have gone differently. I wonder if they just would have said, Hey, here's your money and, um, avoid, avoid this. And then maybe the GI bill doesn't happen and, and so on and so on. You know, it's, it's interesting to talk about that butterfly
1: effect. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think this moment in history without it, America's looks very, very different. Um, as a result. And it's often an overlooked moment in history. We, we get wrapped up in the new deal. We get wrapped up in, uh, yeah, Black, so. Black Tuesday mm-hmm. when the market crashed. Right. 1929. Yeah. Um, we get wrapped up in those things, but then there's this moment in between those where it's like, no, this was just as important mm-hmm. and we tend to not talk about it at all. Um, Jeff, did you, do you have any final thoughts? Any been a little quiet the past no, couple just minutes? Just listening in. Um, <clears throat> Sorry to not, spring that right. on you. Uh, you know, yes, they're treating
0: their uh, veterans any better now. I think uh, twenty-two veterans a day commit suicide. Um, I know from watching Lily exit the Navy. I yeah. think they they do what they can for these guys. She had to go through a lot of programs to. You know they're making sure she understands what her resume is and all this stuff. And you know some of that is, you know, pretty low hanging fruit. But they're they're not taking a lot of stuff for granted. Um, Having said that, um, she was a cook in the Navy that rarely left San Diego because of her personal circumstances and COVID and whatnot. But uh, these guys who come back from actual Mm -hmm. war zones and uh, World War One was every bit as horrific as Afghanistan by most accounts. So um, if not more so in a lot of ways, so these guys come out of there and I don't know what exists. I I, I don't know if anything exists that can properly take care of these guys, but I, I think that they give up a lot. And I think whether or not more can be done, I think we need to try harder and make more
1: of a commitment to these people. Also, yeah, that's a good point. There's no perfect program or no perfect bill or anything, but we got to try. And I think that's the key is, is use every tool we have to to help them when they come home, help them when they're deployed. I mean, help them wherever we can. Um. So yeah, that's the Bonus Army of 1932. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any. Final thoughts or anything you want to share before we wrap up tonight? No, well, you know,
0: it was interesting. It, uh, in from my you know historical education, it was a footnote that got mentioned maybe once or twice. But reading about it, um, I can imagine that this was a major uh, national, if not worldwide, news event when it happened. It was it was a big deal, and like you said, uh, it had a lot of ripples way out on the pond. So it was it was uh, interesting to read about and mm-hmm. uh, fun to talk about.
3: Yeah, uh, I was just thinking about how history is really a never-ending topic. You know, it, it, you can talk about big occurrences or, or whatever, but the um, circumstances surrounding some of the big things, like like you guys talked about with uh, the New Deal and FDR's uh, presidency and everything, so many different uh, dominoes fell to contribute to that. And yeah, this is this is cool because you can always go deeper. You can always go wider and you can always look at it from a different perspective. And, um, that's one of the reasons why we do this, this podcast. It's, it's always fun and it's always revealing to, you know, learn about
1: this stuff. Yeah, it is. I mean, it was, it was 90 years ago, but it's still relevant today and it's still, you can mine a lot from Mm -hmm. it and apply it to the world we live in today, which I, This is what I love about it. Sure. No, Uh, I
2: think you guys can do that. Pretty much nailed it. Eric, you got anything before we wrap up? How we deal with adversity in this country and the adversity of the people in this country. um, We're always, almost always going to say that it falls short of what it should be. And I'm not sure how to solve that problem.
1: Not yet, anyways. Well, have it figured out by next week, Eric, so we can can get this wrapped up. But all right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Um, I appreciate it, and thank you all for listening or watching or however you consume your podcast. And uh, I'm Jake from Dabot History. We got Cameron, Jeff, and Eric. Thanks for coming. See you all next week. Good night.